Hello, I'm Corey Quinn, Chief Cloud Economist at the Duckbill Group. I also host two podcasts myself, the AWS Morning Brief and Screaming in the Cloud. But because that's not enough to keep me going, I write the last week in AWS newsletter as well. I've been taking over hosting duties for Software Engineering Daily for this week and taking you on a tour of the cloud. The fifth of those five episodes, or final one, today focuses on a bit of a strange cloud outlier, for lack of a better term, Oracle Cloud. Here today to suffer my slings and arrows is Oracle's Group Vice President, Cloud Engineering, Cloud at Customer, Salman Paracha. A few announcements before we get started. One, if you like Clubhouse, subscribe to the Club for Software Daily on Clubhouse. It's just Software Daily, and we'll be doing some interesting Clubhouse sessions within the next few weeks. Uh, And two, if you are looking for a job... We are hiring a variety of roles. We're looking for a social media manager. We're looking for a graphic designer. And we're looking for writers. If you are interested in contributing content to Software Engineering Daily, or even if you're a podcaster and you're curious about how to get involved, we are looking for people with interesting backgrounds who can contribute to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, Again, mostly we're looking for social media help, and design help. But if you're a writer or a podcaster, we'd also love to hear from you. You can send me an email with your resume, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. That's jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Salman, thank you for joining me. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. appreciate you bringing me on the show. Oh, of course. So you are Oracle Cloud's Group Vice President, Cloud Engineering, Cloud at Customer. Did someone get bonused by every time they <laughs> slipped the word cloud into your job title? I think it was a nice coincidence that it all came together. Part of the naming philosophy at Oracle also comes from far from a bit of past behavior, if you will, because some of the folks have come into Oracle from a cloud provider that does a really good job of naming. So I think that, that carries over here as well to some degree. I'm relatively unconvinced that any provider in the world when it comes to cloud has done a good job of naming services. You can make a possible exception for DigitalOcean, but by and large, every other provider tends to sort of biff it, for lack of a better term. Well, it's a long name, but the goal is to make sure it's descriptive enough so people can remember what we're trying to go pitch to them when when we talk about the product category. So let's talk a little bit about your own trajectory. You were personally at AWS for, I want to say, seven years, something like that? Yeah, close to eight years. Would have been eight years and if I was stayed another three and a half more months. Yeah, eight years. Which feels like forever for those of us who've never stayed at a job longer than two years ourselves until I started this place. But you were there doing a lot of things. You were promoted from a principal PM role and eventually became, if I'm not mistaken, the general manager or I guess highest person who is directly responsible for a contained service for the serverless application repository. That's correct. So I started my journey actually in Amazon.com where I led a product called Amazon Coins. That's actually how I got into Amazon. And Amazon Coins was this rewards currency for our Kindle Fire ecosystem. So customers spend some, they get some coins, a rewards currency, and then they can spend those coins back on apps, games, or in-app purchases. I always had engineering roots. I have a computer science degree from the University of Florida. And so I just want to get back into more engineering roots. And so I joined AWS in 2014. I looked over workspaces, our end-user computing product. 
and from workspaces is where that's where I became a principal PM at workspaces and then I moved into a single threaded leader role to launch services, which is the application repository, and also nurtured as a GM for the serverless application model. So I owned engineering and product for both of those services. One's an open source tooling framework, if you would, and the other is a service, but that's what I looked over before I joined Oracle back in 2020, last year. Yeah, that's hard to believe, but it's been a little over a year that you've been there. And in that time, you went from a VP of product management, specifically for dedicated region cloud at customer, which we'll get into, and were promoted to group vice president with a bunch of the word cloud repeat recurring after that, after that statement. So congratulations. It Promotions at promotions at different companies tend to be very different things. And even at a place that's as rapidly growing as Oracle Cloud, that's no small feat. Okay, thanks for that. I think this additional responsibility is a lot of support that I get from the current set of people who brought me in. So I appreciate them leaning in. I think I've got a whole bunch to do to prove myself out in this role, but happy to take it on and, and be part of this journey. Back when you first joined Oracle, you and I had had a brief conversation because I've heard this from a bunch of different folks who I knew in the AWS ecosystem, sometimes customers, sometimes AWS employees. And you all sort of come and approach me with this sort of similar hangdog look about you. Like I, I've taken a new job over at Oracle. Like you expect me to somehow hit you with a stick or something. And the first time someone did that, it's, oh my God, why would you work at Oracle? Oh my God, they're paying you in yachts. And the answer was basically, yeah, pretty much. But the more people I see starting to make the transition into working at Oracle Cloud, the clearer it became that there was something else going on here, something that fundamentally went well beyond what we were seeing as far as just money explaining it. What was it that drew you to decide, you know what, Oracle, one of the most hated names in tech in some ways, <laughs> I'm going to go there and help build out their cloud? Yeah, it's a lot to unpack on that one. But I think that when I looked at any job, and I'm trying to think about what I'll gain personally in terms of skill set, I was looking at what Oracle's trying to go solve for and what I'll be able to do for this organization. So there's a lot of my you know, past AWS folks that have worked with directly at AWS who are now at Oracle. So that obviously helps. And hey, what are they trying to go to? They are trying to solve for this, be a fourth cloud provider. Why would they want to do that? What is it or sort of secret sauce there that they can latch onto? And so my conversations with a lot of the engineering counterparts that I work with on a daily basis did lead me to believe that the core fundamentals of what they have built, what they call their second generation cloud, we can get into naming, because they actually had a first generation cloud offering, which was appliance-based, which didn't quite you know, really meet the mark of what customers wanted. At least no, it really needed the quotation marks around cloud in some respects. So the Gen yeah, 2 cloud, right. which is often talked about by your co-founder, Larry Ellison, on earnings calls, and I always hear Gen 2 as if it's the Linux distribution, which, oh, that doesn't sound great. Oh, never mind. Yeah, so Gen 2 was a, you know, an actual cloud offering that built from the ground up that had a lot of the core principles of what cloud was about, which was instantly scale, pay for what you use, just-in-time provisioning, et cetera, the, the benefits of the cloud that as customers saw it. The thing that Oracle knew about its customer base was that a lot of their customers were you know, using legacy software and they continue to have some legacy software and the customers they serve have a very different journey to the cloud. So, you know, a lot of customers have changed the way they think about cloud journey and have adopted certain principles and services for sure. But Oracle really wanted to sort of say, if I were to get customers to using 
of course, Oracle products and Oracle serves not just databases. It has a whole bunch of software products in our you know, global business unit space and, and others and get them to sort of seamlessly move to cloud. What would that look like? And I think that's where the story got a bit interesting. For example, there's a whole bunch of investments that Oracle has made in L2 or Layer 2 networking to virtualize it. That's tough engineering work because usually what happens in a cloud environment is the Layer 3, the IP packets, are virtualized so that they can have an overlay network and you can you know, send traffic from one instance to another instance, and it all feels as if you're in a, in a physical network, but you're really not. So as I, I'll enumerate a few things, so they really look deeply at, hey, what if we were to do layer two? What if we were to start with, start with off-the-box virtualization for increased performance of networking? And networking became a very core focal point. For example, Oracle was the first ones to offer RDMA or 100 gigabits per second network throughput between instances at scale in the cloud because customers were doing a lot of these tough workloads and didn't want to have to change their workloads to move the, or take the advantages of the cloud, the price performance, the data ingress, egress challenges, et cetera. So I can elaborate on these things in more detail, but the fundamentals of building a cloud offering that feels very much like on-premises software with little change and enabling customers to lift and shift, I think has merits, technical merits for sure. And I think customers are just getting familiar with what Oracle Cloud can offer to them. Because, you know, frankly, Oracle has been in a second generation offering, has been relatively late to what was already established in the marketplace. Right. And historically, it's been mostly a story that I've seen in public around, oh, if you have existing Oracle workloads, this is the best place to cloudify them, for lack of a better term. That said, I'm starting to see breakthrough success stories where folks who do not have, at least a disclosed, on-premises Oracle environment are starting to seriously consider Oracle Cloud for different workloads. The thing that caught my mind, you allude to networking, but let's be very direct here. You are 10 times less expensive for outbound data transfer than AWS, which is similar to the other tier one providers. So, so for anything that's heavily data transfer based, that immediately becomes some an object of significant interest and concern. Now, everyone loves to say, well, once you're at significant scale, of course, no one pays retail. Sure. But that also applies to you folks as well. And when you're sitting here trying to sketch out a startup that might be heavy on data transfer, you're going to use the publicly posted pricing just to get back of the envelope calculations. And when you're orders of magnitude away from being a viable answer, a lot of the expensive retail pricing doesn't seem to make a whole heck of a lot of sense. So folks will never have those conversations with a number of cloud providers just because it doesn't look externally to be viable. Yeah, there's some truth to that, for sure. One of the philosophies, if you would, apart from the engineering principles, and I chat with a lot of the principal engineers on AWS who now come in and have built out the Oracle Cloud, was on top of the engineering principles was a simplicity option. So, for example, pricing simplicity, Oracle Cloud will have same instance price across all regions. So now you can budget for it. We don't have to think about what is this instance cost in one region or the other. And now we do have about you know, tens of these regions. So it's like, it's not trivial. And so simplicity of pricing and this whole notion of having a single bucket of credits that you purchase and you can deplete against any services was also novel out for its time. So simplicity of pricing, transparency of, of pricing and, and what you can easily use to construct your budget against, I think it's an important additional element of the Oracle Cloud story, which I think customers are 
slowly but surely seeing it and, and taking advantage of. Clearly, you know, the customers that we have on our website that we talk about that have used Oracle's egress to its advantage is Zoom and others in that same bucket, like 8 by 8 But just the general principles of making pricing simple, using same instance pricing across all regions for all types of services, it's a, it's a big deal. And I think customers are really appreciating that. They seem to be. My question for you is, are you seeing an improved uptake of Oracle Cloud from customers that do not have pre-existing, deep-seated, decades-long relationships with Oracle proper? For sure. So I see a few parts of the Oracle Cloud business, so I can speak to those more convincingly. I think if you look at all the networking enhancements we've done, so a lot of our customers are now thinking about how to really run VMware workloads on Oracle Cloud. Part because, you know, those VMware workloads can't live without L2. So VMware applications were written for physical networks, ones particularly with clusters of compute nodes that share the same broadcast domains and use features for on-premises that aren't supported in an L3 virtual network stack. And a few examples of that, like assignment of Macs and IPs without a preceding API call, low latency reassignment of Mac and IPs for high availability and live migration, multiplexing by Mac address, et cetera, et cetera, and VLAN support. So we are seeing a lot of customers really interested in running their VMware stack on Oracle Cloud because it looks very much like bare metal that they were running on-premises, but taking advantage of the scaling function of the cloud, taking advantage of the price performance function of the cloud and being able to really be more agile. So that's one category. The other category related to networking as well is, is our HPC fabric because HPC requires node and clusters to be able to speak to each other, each other, whether that be computational fluid dynamics, whether that be visual rendering, whether that be Monte Carlo simulation, they need the network to be really performant at all times, at every time. And so HPC, and the use cases there is Mazda, Nissan, and a whole bunch of research that's happening even in MIT that's happen- that takes advantage of our both our instances and our network stack to achieve certain scale points I think we're seeing a lot of customers use it for that. Simplicity of pricing, of course, plays into all that. But HPC, our legacy infrastructure, such as customers on-premises and and VMware installations are making, really attracting a lot of our customers. The other category, which I'm not as super close to, but others in Oracle are, is our ISV category, which are looking for simplicity of deployment and significance. Those are independent software vendors, correct? So it's always good to disambiguate these things. Because sometimes if I have to think for a second, I'm probably not the only one. Please continue. No, no, sure. So independent software vendors is a whole category of customers that are continuing to build on Oracle so that they can take advantage of the price performance that Oracle offers by providing a superior service to their customers and and take advantage of cloud. And in that space, we have a whole bunch of customers and I've already publicly talked about like 8x8 and Zoom and Altair and others that are in that that bucket. There's workforce recently that we added to that as well. And so these are non-Oracle workloads. They have nothing to do with Oracle technology. Some of them may have been running Oracle databases in, in the past, maybe a portion of it. But by and far large, their purpose in life is to develop a new modern stack or you know, deliver some value, and Oracle has been able to support these types of workloads. Let's dive into the HPC story that you just mentioned a minute ago. Because one of the things that I found when I talk to folks who are using HPC or high-performance computing is outside of some very specific use cases, generally found in academia or research, a lot of HPC customers don't 
think of themselves in the context of HPC. On some level, this is harkens back to the problem of, oh, this is for your data lake. And you talk to folks and, oh, we don't have a data lake. And you sort of stare at them and, no, you have about 30 petabytes of data sitting in your object storage. What do you think that is? Oh, you mean all the logging nonsense or all the assets or all the insert fill in the blank here. It becomes something that customers don't self-identify with. So what is HPC for the vast majority of people out there who might not know what that is, first off, and secondly, might not realize it applies to them? Fair enough. So HPC is this category of compute technologies where you're really thinking about putting clusters of computers close to each other so they can achieve a unit of work. So in manufacturing, this could be computer-aided engineering, computational fluid dynamics, figuring out if your, you know, your car is really going to if it crashes, is it really going to sustain body injury, as an example? Or is it going to you know, be able to, if it, it falls off a bridge and goes into water, you know, what's the rate at which water will flow into the car? A lot of interesting simulation work in manufacturing. But it needs a lot of computational power to run these types of simulations, and they all need to be done you know, in concert with each other trying to achieve a unit of work. Similarly, in finance, it's like trading platforms and risk modeling exercises. In media, is visual effects rendering which requires like rendering farms and you need a whole bunch of those and they need to do coordinated work and complete that coordinated work in a, in a reasonable amount of time. And some of that work is now showing up in sort of you know deep learning as well. It's like coordinated work. So it's not like the old classical high performance computing, what has been labeled, but we're seeing that technology transfer into that type of workload as well. In research and medical research, drug discovery, genomics, climate change, all of that requires a whole bunch of computer servers, we put together, do coordinated work, run algorithms and spit out you know, a result and do that quickly and reasonably well. Last but not least, life sciences, you know, analyzing the physical movements of atoms or molecules to perform genomic sequencing. So, so these are all the various types of uh, industries that use high performance computing to achieve a result. Hope that helps the, the audience what HPC really means. And for before that, you need you know bare metal instances, low latency cluster networks using 100 gigabits per second RDMA technology and high performance storage to achieve that outcome. So I hope that that gives you a bit of color of what HPC is. No, it absolutely does. I've spoken to a couple of large hedge fund style computational heavy workloads. And what they wound up discovering was for what they were doing, they already built out a data center. They couldn't handle interrupts for their application stack super well. And they were debating, do we build out a second data center? Do we build out a cloud environment? And the answer became pretty clear, this was a couple of years ago, that there was no viable path economically to put this in the cloud unless they got some truly astronomical discounting, which is always on a fixed term basis. So there's no guarantee that it'll be renewed at those generous levels. So it's for their use case, And given their sensitivity around how proprietary all this stuff was, building a second data center economically made sense. I don't normally come up with that assessment, but I'm here to help customers come up with the right answer, not try and push in any particular direction. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that as well, right? Customers, eventually, if if you don't have the right price performance economics across compute, storage, networking, and achieve the rate of performance they want the unit of work to complete, they will choose to go business as usual. And so when we looked at this problem, we said we have to solve this across the stack, right? And have that stack be, be readily available to have their workers compete to be completed. And then the data that has to flow out of it also has to be super cheap. 
So I think that combination does make sense. Mazda, Nissan, Siemens, they're all using Oracle Cloud today, amongst the many others, for HPC-style workloads. And that's one category, as we talked about. And then the other category we touched a little bit on was, was, was VMware. But the thing I didn't mention, and I think it's worth a few minutes of a chat for sure, is what do you do for all the on-premises workloads that are sitting on Blade service today? or commodity servers or specialized servers today? Uh, generally, I will wind up pulling the fire alarm that winds up dumping all the foam out of the brands of servers unworkable, or have it written off as a total <laughs> loss by insurance and start over somewhere else. But that's why they don't let me in the data centers anymore. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably not a bad reason if you were going to do all of that at a customer that is, you know manages a billion dollars worth of transactions every day. But I think the other thing that we were looking at solving a tough problem was Customers trading in a single rack of a Blade server, for example, for a single rack of a cloud server does not necessarily get them along their way of transforming their data center. So data center transformation is happening across the industry, whether customers are shrinking their data centers, moving it to Coldos, moving it all to a public cloud, it's going and happening in one of these various types of shapes. And if you look at this market space and you say, well, how can we help 80% of that workload get to the cloud quickly? And part because, um, to be honest, this is where Oracle actually has a lot of business, our exadata platform, the you know, combination of hardware and software today that exadata provides, does provide some really significant performance gains for our customers. And we're looking at all that customer base and looking at this problem of 80% of workload. This is the other tough engineering problem that I think Oracle has solved for which is how do you get regions to scale down to a very smaller size so you can start small and then linearly scale them out? I think the notion of always having multiple availability zones to, to be part of a region deployment all has been challenged in the market. Like even in, in the market, you'll see local zones, right? And or smaller footprints. And the engineering effort to get all of your services into a package format, if you would, that can help customers really transform and change your data center strategy is the area that I'm focused on. Frankly, the reason you said, you asked me earlier, right? Why did I join? Because I saw some of the engineering behind what it means to shrink data centers without having to forego capabilities like high availability and, and durability, et cetera. And that's another area where I see a lot of customers interested. They want to make the right choice long-term for their on-premises estate and Oracle has, I think, a set of products that can enable them to do that. And so from an engineering perspective, there's a whole bunch of efforts made on thinking about power distribution and placement, anti-affinity, affinity mapping of compute instances, and a whole bunch of that I can go into more detail of. One of my problems has always been that, well, I, I understand the engineering reasons behind doing a lot of these things. The painful part is that I have to sit here and figure out on some visceral level what it's going to take to wind up spreading this thing across multiple availability zones from day one. I'm incurring data transfer charges between those availability zones in that model, and it's still within the same disaster radius for a whole bunch of disasters that my insurer cares about, that my compliance folks care about. If I have to have multiple copies of this thing running, I'd, I'd sooner put it multi-region, not multi-AZ. That's always been my starting philosophy, and I understand there are workloads where this makes zero sense and can't be done. I, I am sympathetic to that. But what you're saying does resonate with my own experiences. I think it's class of workloads, agreed. Like there's some class of workloads, you probably want to have multi-region so that you have full DR and full backup. And so your compliance and insurance attestations are met. Totally got it. 
And then there's high availability, which is not necessarily the same thing as DR or backup, for which, you know, there are these multiple zones. The argument that I was making, which, you know, was that customers on-premises data today is served in a single type of zone uh, infrastructure today. And they rack and stack a whole bunch of hardware software to continue to meet the latency performance characteristics to serve their customers. And when they think about breaking that thing down into moving it to the cloud, the challenge is what portion do you move to the cloud, to the public cloud, without fundamentally breaking the properties of the system, right? There are dependencies, there are multiple downstream and upstream dependencies that are all put together into a software package. Now, we can argue that's like, why did you do that? But those were the tools of the trade back 10, 10, 20 years from now. There weren't services. There wasn't the notion of cloud. And so one of the things to think, as we were thinking about this problem, as I mentioned, I look over dedicated regions, was how do you bring the entire cloud experience to customers so that they can easily move and without having to worry about the networking cost, networking performance between these two different islands in their data center, modernize it all, and then have an escape hatch to wherever they want to take it once it all has been modernized. I see that as being an emerging trend where customers want to move to the cloud economics and cloud agility, but so much of their data and being a boat anchor, so much of regulation and so much of latency prevents them from doing that. And I think what we have done there from an engineering perspective, when we bring shrink wrap a region into a smaller footprint and bring all the services along with it, I think it's a pretty interesting engineering problem that, that Oracle solved. I would agree with you. I think that there's also, I guess, a criticism that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up which sure. is Charles Fitzgerald, who runs Platformonomics, has been doing his whole series for multiple years now on Follow the CapEx, specifically parsing through a bunch of the earnings calls for all the cloud providers you care to name and several we don't, and figuring out, okay, who's serious about this versus who's not, based upon a somewhat opinionated analysis of their capital expenditures that they're incurring as a function of cloud investment. And sure. his working thesis is that if you're throwing serious money into cloud, you're serious. But if you're not making heavy capital investments, then you're clearly not. And I have an opinion on that, but I'm curious to hear what your point on that is, given that Oracle is not spending anywhere near the multiple tens of billions on capital expenditure in a quarter that AWS, Azure, and GCP are. So I think, I don't know the exact specific on the financials of what we spend and what we don't. And I would not ask you to disclose them should you know them internally, to be very yeah, clear. But it's totally hard it. to easily hide tens of billions of dollars of spend in quarters <laughs> and enough. not wind up getting led out of the building in handcuffs right around the third time you've done it. The SEC does not play around. That's fair enough. Okay, so I, I'll say, I think I know at least one portion convincingly that I can talk about on this front, which is we wanted to get close to customers where they were and be able to do that in a, in a way that we can earn their business and then scale linearly. So Oracle has a large enterprise customer base. You know, we're very fortunate to have that base. We've served them for many years and we wanted to get close to their workloads first. Right? It's not a surprise. I think anyone who knows Oracle Cloud will see that we will say that Oracle workloads running on Oracle Cloud provide the best price performance economics than anywhere else. And so when we think about capital expenditure, there's a bucket of capital expenditure for all types of cloud consumers. So all of the investments in the US and Europe that we're building in multiple data centers and quickly growing the data center footprint is trying to manage the heterogeneity of our cloud. 
But in some areas, for example, in Oman, when we did a dedicated region, we're like, okay, we have to spend a certain amount of capex to get the very specific workloads. We're in a different cycle of our business, right? And then as a result of that, we have to choose where exactly we're going to double down on our investment. So we really have focused ourselves on fixing an engineering problem that says we can start small and linearly scale out. And as soon as we see the sign that we need to linearly scale out, we do that very rapidly. And so the, the flip side is, oh, actually, you should have the exact same architecture, the exact same capital expenditure to give customers the price performance economics that you need over time. But we're already doing that. So the question is, what are we going to gain from that additional capital expenditure with the exception of, hey, we have this complete illusion of infinite capacity, but we're actually serving, let's say, 3,000 customers in a locality, and we know exactly the workloads we want, and we know what the linear scale-up model looks like. So five years ago, uh, when they thought about region design, they took very deliberate choices. And this is what I think makes the CapEx story interesting. Because once you have ability to sort of shrink wrap to a certain amount, of course, it's some bare basic capacity you need. And if you're seeing the demand pick up, can you incrementally do more? I think that for a fact, Oracle can do. And when we start growing and scaling our business, we continue to add incremental capacity versus having to spend tens of billions of dollars upfront. And there's some use cases, for example, as a result, like we don't have a full edge story yet, right? And so I'm sure there's a lot of capex on that front as well. And so we, we're trying to make sure we're doing a judicious investment cycle as customers. And to be honest, the first customer tranche that we are going after is the Oracle customer base, the Oracle enterprise customer. We have been fortunate that the basic primitives that we have put in place for networking and and compute pricing and simplicity has led to additional wins. And that's just the fruit of of good engineering, like the HPC and the VMware workload, the legacy migration workload and whatnot. Hopefully that gives you some color to how we think about this investment cycle. One area that is, I guess, near and dear to you that I find fascinating that no other provider can touch is the idea of cloud at customer at cloud at cloud at cloud. Sorry, I got stuck in that (laughs) loop again, or dedicated regions or whatever it is you want to call it. But fundamentally, you roll out a full suite of every service Oracle Cloud offers on premises at a customer. Talk to me about that. Because that is unheard of. We have Azure Stack, which does some subset. We have AWS Outpost, which can only be described as begrudging. We have GCP doing whatever it's doing with Anthos. It's such a boring name. I have to look it up every time, and it's not clear at all where it starts or where it stops. But Oracle Cloud remains the only cloud service that I've seen that effectively takes over a customer data center. Tell me about that. Yeah, so technically we don't take over a customer's data center, right? So to be what we do is we say, give us a little bit of space, a little bit of power, and we'll land an entire region on your premises. When you say a little bit of space and a little bit of power, let's begin there. What yeah. are those requirements? So about 2,000 square feet of contiguous block of space mm-hmm. and about a half a megawatt of power. That's not small by, you know, my spare room standards here, but for a data center, that is easily doable for any data center that isn't completely bursting at the gills already. So what we have found when we did this initial search into the target market, it's about 10 to 15% of basically what the space would look like. And that's where we're focusing our efforts on. There's some room for us to grow into the region. So this is why we ask for a little bit more space and a little bit more power. We're also doing some engineering work to further reduce our ask here. But that's the shape of what we're asking customers. So what the idea here is, and frankly, this journey started three, five years ago. They said, if we were to go land, so the whole CapEx conversation kind of ties nicely into this. Like if we have to go land in Tokyo in the next 30 days, what does it take for us to land a region in Tokyo in 30 to 60 days? 
I mean, that's the type of problem we have to go solve for. Or if we have to go land in Brazil or if we land and, and go some other remote location where we have to, of course, think about logistics and a whole bunch of other legal stuff. But from an engineering perspective, can we start with a footprint, support 70 of our services on day one, both control plane and data plane, with a certain amount of capacity that can linearly scale? Can we do that? And that led to a whole bunch of interesting engineering choices on upstream power and downstream power. But fundamentally, what it resulted in was we could actually take that footprint and stamp out more regions and start start them small and then linearly scale them as demand grows. That entire concept is being brought to customers. Now, over time, they've gotten and Oracle has gotten even smarter about what it means to do the right deployment strategies. How do we make sure we do fairness algorithms for our services teams? What does it mean to not have service teams request above and beyond capacity they don't need based on signals we get from customers? So there's a whole bunch of engineering work that led to can we do scaling out of regions at anywhere in the globe in 30 to 60 days and start small and go linear? That whole engineering is coming to customers on premises. And so why do customers need that engineering on-premises? Why do they need a region on-premises? So and so I also look at our Exadata Cloud customer business, which is just a special purpose database offering, which runs the Oracle database on a high-performance software and uh, hardware stack. So we have that offering as well. But what we heard from customers was, what do we do about our middleware that we have to modernize? What do we do about the application that calls into the database? All of that has to be modernized. All that needs a space to live in. So that eventually, if we are no longer dealing with data regulation or no longer dealing with a latency problem, we have modernized it and then we eventually have an escape hatch to where we need to go to. But this product really is in the making for the three and a half, four years. Now we've gotten to a point where we can say, okay, we, now we can ship it into your data center. We've figured out how to do that part too. But it brings with it the entire gambit of Oracle 70 plus services, including our developer services, our core compute network storage services, our AI data science services, et cetera. That's how we do it fundamentally. One of the things that I get flack for sometimes is when I talk about Oracle Cloud, everyone gets up in arms and yells at me. They call me a sellout. They call me a shill, et cetera, which I understand that. I get accused of that all the time for my coverage of AWS. I get accused of being too mean towards AWS as well as being a sellout to AWS in response to the exact same thing. So apparently the internet doesn't know what it wants, and that's fine. My position has always been that you can buy my attention. You cannot buy my opinion. And I will say that Oracle Cloud is technically excellent. I've spun things up there. It worked as expected. The only onboarding problem I had a few years ago when I started down this path was there was some challenge with getting out of fraud control because I was doing this midair. So it was through some aggregator in Chicago, I think it was from an IP perspective. I'm claiming to be somewhere else and it probably looked fairly suspicious. I can't really fault Oracle Cloud for that. But since then, that was the they did a $1 temp off that they then re- refunded. And that was the last time they charged me for anything. Your always free tier is always free, as it says on the tin and should be. There are no surprise bills. I read through, because this is Oracle, let's not kid ourselves here. I read through the terms and conditions carefully. You aren't asserting ownership of anything I build. It's very reasonable, very standard. There's nothing lurking there that I was able to see that made this a terrible idea. And I still get periodic email updates on the instance I left running telling me that there's been a maintenance event and you folks are sorry, here's what happened. So rather than leaving it to me, to play guess and check. Further, a lot of the things that you did with the Iron IO folks acquisition to build out your serverless functions, 
it was in many ways superior to what AWS Lambda had been doing. There was an awful lot of really neat stuff going in there. The single big drawback that I argue has kept people away is the Oracle at the beginning of all of that. I mean, you can only put so many, you're going to put the word cloud in so many times, but that still winds up having the Oracle word coming first. I'm not asking you necessarily to dunk on your employer that seems career limiting in most places, but how do you square that circle? You know, I've I've been cut from the cloud that focuses just on your customers. So I, I continue to just focus on how we're going to serve our customers. And if a company like Oracle is making a very deliberate choice in serving their customers differently and they want people who have done this part of the business before and want to both change culturally inwards and outwards, then I think that that's the change that we're impacting. So we've got to be humble and, and sort of have the humility in front of customers saying, we have a platform, we have business practices, and we have a support structure that is here to serve you and serve you as adequately as you've been served in the past by any other cloud provider and just give us the right to earn some of that business. So yes, there is probably some of that overhang part because you know the business model has been different in the past, I suppose. It's just that I don't know that past. All I know is what we're trying to build in towards the future. And customers, when they look at the service that they can get from Oracle, usually give us a second take. That's quite frankly, that's that's what I'm looking for, which is I need the second take for me to describe why we can provide value to you and do that in clear, transparent terms repeatedly. So apart from just technology, if you look at what we've done recently with our cloud lift services, we're paying for customers' migrations, meaning my team goes in and tries to migrate customers' workloads on our dime and behalf, because we believe strongly that the platform will be where you want to be. And so that's our cost we incur. We have cloud lift services as part of a program we launched two, three months ago, where we said to customers, bring your workloads. So I think earning trust is a very long-term thing. You just got to chip away at it and prove out case by case on how we can serve them well. I don't have a magic bullet for it, but I think customers are taking notice and giving us more, even more of their business to us. And it's, it's about keeping their trust now and making them successful post-deployment, which is a good portion of my focus and the entire organization's focus at this point. The idea that effectively every other provider has in the space of, oh, we'll charge you at a discounted rate to help you migrate in. It's, I don't mean to be unkind here, but I've never understood the thinking behind that strategy. Because once someone starts spending money on your cloud service, they are going to continue to spend money on your cloud service. Spoiler, I've been down this road with a bunch of different customers and I've seen how this goes. You should be paying customers to let you migrate things on. Covering the cost is one of the least difficult steps that companies could do. But somehow you're the only ones I've seen doing this in the Wild. I further do want to point out that I've spoken to a variety of Oracle Cloud customers. Now, historically, most of these have been big E enterprises, very large companies, the blue chips you would expect, but I'm starting to see you move into the startup space a bit more. And one thing I have not heard through any of those conversations is a complaint about Oracle Cloud, either a technical shortcoming or a business practice complaint. People will complain about Oracle, the overall company, Without any provocation, and let's be honest, a lot of this is very well-deserved, but Oracle Cloud only gets grief that is reflected. What I start seeing that I think is, I guess, a real sign of maturity and growth in the platform is there are starting to be stories around Oracle Cloud that don't feature the word databases or, heaven forbid, autonomous databases, which is Oracle's database division's whole big thing these days. 
it starts to stand on its own legs and its own merits rather than depending upon its giant install base in existing enterprises as its primary means for marketing and selling. Are you seeing an uptick in the startup world of Oracle Cloud these days? I'm not super close to our startup ecosystem, to be brutally honest, so substantiate any claim that I make here. I do know that a lot of startups that are born in the cloud, that use Oracle Cloud, have shared the same sentiment. So to the extent I can give you a trend line or some sort of an indication that startups are now a big area of unfocus for Oracle or you know they are coming to our platform organically, I just don't have the data points on that one. But I do know ISVs, whether born in the cloud, new or ones that are migrating, they are. So that's a good proxy, I think, because everyone's trying to develop a software stack and they need need a place to put it, both from a price performance perspective, from our business practices as well. But I think the overall sentiment is changing and not only because we have autonomous database or not only because we have an Oracle database product associated with the cloud. I think that is true and that's a fact. Although I've come to really appreciate the word autonomous, I don't know what changed my thinking on that one, but I'll leave that for a different debate. But I think you're right, in part because we've been very deliberate about it, which is Oracle Cloud is more than just database. Oracle Cloud is about cloud technologies, things that you come to expect from other cloud providers if you want to develop new software or bring over existing software. And the proof really right now that I see in sort of big, bold letters is our independent software vendors and ISVs that are coming onto the platform rapidly. I would like to point out that I didn't give you a list of questions I was going to be asking you before we did this. The best guidance I gave you, let's hope neither of us gets fired by the end of this. And just now is a, is a perfect example of the sort of thing I'm talking about. You could have said, oh yeah, we're seeing a whole bunch of startup stuff that a lot of clients taking stuff, taking, adopting our service. I can't talk about any offhand, of course, but oh yeah, it's great. This ties into, in many ways, an echo of what I've seen at your previous employer. I have never yet caught someone at AWS or at Oracle Cloud lying to me. Even when right now you could have come out and said, oh, yeah, we're seeing any, we're seeing whatever it is that will sound good. You're intrinsically honest. And I appreciate that about not just you, but it seems to be a cultural ethos I'm seeing throughout my conversations with folks working with Oracle Cloud. This is the sort of thing that makes me tell people, yeah, I know, it sounds like I'm having a joke at your expense. Just suspend disbelief and have a conversation with them. And so far, it seems to be going relatively well. One day, I'm hoping I won't have to wind up giving that disclaimer first. But that's going to take a few more years, I suspect. Yeah, I don't know the timeline of that. I just, I'm in a smaller bubble because uh, I'm in the Oracle Cloud infrastructure piece and I know customers. And frankly, I think, to be honest, our SaaS teams, the Oracle Fusion products are doing really well with customers as well. So, and we are doing a whole bunch of work with our SaaS platform teams to run on Oracle Cloud and make it a canonical, canonical platform through which to deliver the SaaS products for improved latency, improved user experience and whatnot. I don't think even if I was in AWS, I would say that we are ever going to be happy with the experience that we offer to customers. We just have to continually in this environment and, and, and especially in infrastructure, I just have to be discontent and strive for what community can do better. So part of my reason not to give a glowing scorecard to Oracle or to anybody is just general discontent with where we are and what we can do to be better. And there's so much we can do to be even better for our customers. So I think if I, if, if I was back in AWS, I would say that about, if you ask me like how startups adopting AWS, I would have probably said, you know, I wish we could do better. But nonetheless, I think customers are taking notice. Simplicity, focus on really tough engineering problems, and 
transparency in how we do business with them, both at the pre-sale side, the post-sale side and support. I think the combination of this, uh, my hope is that, you know, customers will continue to give us more of their business. I expect that they will. I think that you've done a lot of the right things. I think that what you're doing is heading in the right direction. I also want to thank you for taking the time to sit here and suffer my slings and arrows. If people want to learn more about Oracle Cloud and make up their minds for themselves, where should they go to start? They should go to oracle.com. On the page, they should get an easy link to get to our Oracle Cloud infrastructure and, and get started. Deploy a first application, a VM, set up a virtual cloud network, whatever have you. So go to oracle.com on the main page. Invariably, you'll see Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. Just click on it and it'll take you to some canned paths on what problem you want to go solve with cloud infrastructure and hopefully takes you getting to where you need to be pretty quickly. Thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me, Corey. I appreciate the chat. Salman Paracha, Oracle's Group Vice President, Cloud Engineering Cloud at Customer. This concludes my guest hosting of Software Engineering Daily, but the tour of the cloud isn't over quite yet. Subscribe to Screaming in the Cloud on your podcast platform of choice to hear the final episode of the Cloud Tour Saga. And of course, don't forget to go to lastweekinaws.com to subscribe to the Last Week in AWS newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Quinnypig, that's Q-U-I-N-N-Y-Pig, for all my snarky takes.